Uh, good to be with you. This is the last stop for me after four or five pretty busy days in Melbourne. It's been great to be in Melbourne. Uh, lots of different things I'm speaking at. So, um, yeah, it's good to be with you in your series. And what I'll do today, I'll just, it's a bit of a, it's a topical series, so we'll dip in and out of some Bible passages. So a topical series compared to, say, preaching through a specific passage. Uh, we're just going to deal with this theme, Sweet Little Lies. And uh, I was talking to someone yesterday. People here do know where that term comes from, what song that comes from. Does anyone know who wrote the song? People my age and around my age should know that. So it's a Fleetwood Mac song. There you go. So Sweet Little Lies. I'm going to show you a picture of a bloke, if we can put him up. This is Thomas Midgley. Thomas Midgley. He looks an evil type of character, doesn't he? And he is responsible for more deaths globally than anyone else. More deaths globally than anyone else. Because he was the bloke who decided to put ethyl into fuel for cars. As cars were being built and as they were taking root in our culture, uh, internal combustion engines had a knocking noise in them that was very hard to suppress and also cause problems with the performance of the car. And he, did, he, he came up with putting ethyl in the fuels. And the other name for ethyl is lead, right? Uh, 62,000 baby girls were called ethyl the year that ethyl was introduced into lead in cars. So if you've got a great auntie called great auntie ethyl, you know, Great Auntie Lead doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? 62,000 babies called Ethel. But not only that, he was also responsible for making refrigerators run amazingly well after some underperforming refrigerators uh, came on the scene in America from the Frigidaire company by coming up with Freon to put in refrigerators in inert gas. And the other name for that is uh, you know, CFCs. So, he put CFC into the air, which destroys the ozone, and lead into fuel, which has you know, caused much devastation. All under the mistaken belief that it was actually helping people, it wasn't actually hurting anyone. It's not hurting anyone is a sweet little lie in our culture. And it's often but not always around issues of sexuality or authenticity in relationships in our modern Western world. And it's totally tied into that other little cocktail you'll get at the cocktail bar of Sweet Little Lies called You Do You. And you can put those two drinks together and wake up with a headache the next day. It's not hurting anyone. It's not hurting anyone. How do we get here, though? How do we get to a cultural lie like that? Because while it is a lie, it's not hurting any, anyone, it seems actually very specific to Western culture at this current time. At the moment in the modern West, because of how we live our lives in such a, an individuated way, the you-do-you thing, uh, to say it's not hurting anyone is to say that the decisions I make because I wish to make them, I can hermetically seal myself off from implications to other people. And uh, I, I know that other cultures have a less individualistic view of humans uh, that seems to work together, but we certainly are a much more enmeshed society. And I want to look at four things about it's not hurting anyone, this sweet little lie, and we've got them on the screen. And it's why do we say it, how do we use it, uh, where is it taking us, and how do we refuse it? So first, why do we say it? Why do we say it's not hurting anyone? Why do people say that in our context? Well, let me give you a theological answer and also a sociological answer. 
Now, I want to start back at the start of the Bible in Genesis uh, chapter 3. And uh, this is where Adam and Eve have been created by God to fulfill his purpose for the world together. And they have a million yeses and one no in the garden. A million yeses and one no. Eat, 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 don't eat. That was it. One prohibitive law and everything else was open slather. And it says this in Genesis 3.5, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And the story of Genesis is foundational because it gives us a source of so much of who we are as people and why we behave as we behave. And central to it is this myth that we can make decisions that are hermetically sealed off from anybody else. That when we throw that pebble into the pond in a decision, ripples don't come out. And you read that and you go, the first thing I always think when I read that verse is, is why didn't God make a prickly pear tree as the tree that you know, you're not allowed to eat from? Because if you've ever tried to eat a prickly pear or tried to take one off without gloves on, you'll know about it, right? But it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So good, pleasing, and desirable. I think that probably sums up why we self-justify decisions around it's not hurting anybody. Because if it was bad for food, unpleasing to the eye, and not so desirable, those wouldn't be the decisions we want to make or justify. But it hurts them, Adam and Eve, and humanity, because they do die when they take the fruit, eventually. It hurts others because sin enters the world through that act, and the spiritual reality kicks in in physical effects. They didn't die immediately, but they were cut off from the source of life, who is God, and brought under his curse and judgment, and there's a lag time between them eating the fruit, which is good, pleasing, and desirable, to the day that they're planted in the ground, <laughs> dead. Something happens. Someone gets hurt, in other words. <laughs> what they thought wasn't hurting anybody was actually hurting themselves. And perhaps what we want to think in the Western world, as we think about these little lies, is the deep interconnectedness of people. That the whole story of Genesis, at the start of the Bible, through to the New Testament, where Jesus is coming, is predicated on interconnected people and events that you have no control over once you set them in motion. You couldn't go to the Bible and read the Bible and say, decisions that are made are never hurting anybody. You look at the story of uh, King David, who, you know, looking over at Bathsheba, cool, she's all right, and one thing leads to another, and things fall apart. People get killed. Goes on for generations. And in the story of the Bible, God saves a nation and people within that nation and sin enters through one man, Adam, and then to all, including that nation. But the story of the Bible is also that grace and salvation enters through one man and then to all. The decisions that are made do this. They, they fan out like that, and then they narrow back into Jesus, where hurt happens to everyone. That hurt narrows in on Jesus, and then the good that Jesus brings fans out like that. That's the story of the Bible. That's the context we have to bring to all the stories that we hear in our culture when people say it's not hurting anyone. The history of the Bible and the history of the world is 
of people groups where hurt happens. And yes, there are individuals, but the story of the Bible is to a people group, to people in living in communities. And it's in recent history now, and in specific locations of the West, in which we say things like it's not hurting anybody. In our culture today, autonomy, our self-rule, is not only recognised, but celebrated as the manner in which we should live. In fact, if you want to live a truly authentic life, the way to do that is to be your most satisfied self. And you can justify all sorts of things in order to arrive at that. And it seems to have occurred very quickly in our cultural context, but I reckon there's a lot of iceberg under that tip. And something I said yesterday, I'm gonna put it on the screen and I'll explain a little bit. In a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman says this, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary, I'll explain this in a minute, prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's rights to define his or her own existence. Think about the red words. It sees selfhood in psychological terms. The automatic instinct in Western society is the individual in society. And that's not true around the world and through history. There are individuals, but that's not the instinctive way we want to view e each other. It's, uh, I, a friend of mine was uh, working in mission in Malawi, and he said there was never a point in his life where he's by himself. He was always with someone else. And I said, but I'm an introvert. Uh, how many introverts could live in Malawi? How could you be Mal uh, an introvert from Malawi? And he said, oh, we, we, we take care of that. If you're walking down the road with someone, there's always someone with you, but the introvert's the guy at the back of the pack just walking along, and no one will, will talk to him because they know that he's an introvert. Whereas the introvert here is, give me my coffee and my books and my room and I'll hide. <laughs> but that's not possible in that setting. But this is the sociological aspect of who we are, not the theological aspect. We see ourselves as individuals, sort of psychologically inside ourselves, looking out at the world like uh, a knight through a visor. You know? No one's coming into my real true self here and we're looking out at the world. That's not how the rest of the world sees itself. It's been an idea built up over several centuries. It's what's labeled as the buffered self. You're away from other people. You're buffered by your physicality and you're hiding in your internal self. And that makes us think that I can make decisions that are actually buffered from what other people are doing and how they think. And it says it places a premium on the individual right to define his or her own existence. And the, the word there, premium, is important, not just because of ethyl and fuel. Um, but that's the default. The default in our culture is that you get to decide who you are and how you want to be. And then you have to build this construct around it that says, and if you get to do that, and that clashes with someone else's way they want to do life and be, really, we'll show you how you're not really hurting anyone. <laughs> you can rewrite the narrative to show that you're doing okay and we can find a way to do that for ourselves. Let me explain it this way, we've got the next slide up. Really, the psychological self is just the tip of an iceberg. The belief that we can do what we like, as long as it's not hurting anybody, 
sort of, that sits at the top, but underneath that, there's a whole iceberg of ideas in our Western world. And if we've got the next slide, I'll show you the three words that are looking at our choice, coercion, and consent. There are three taboo issues in our culture about how you can live a life that says, I can do what I want without hurting anybody. And here are the three commandments of the modern world. One may not criticize someone else's life choices or behavior. That's written in stone. Number two is one may not behave in a manner that coerces or causes harm to others. And number three is one may not consent uh, in a sexual relationship with someone, one may not take part in a sexual relationship with someone without his or her consent. Choice, coercion, and consent are the three things we now have to say, if I want to do what I want and not hurt anyone, I have to tick these boxes. And that's about it, I think. Those are our three commandments, or our three taboos. And if you're at a uh, dinner party, perhaps, and you sort of criticize someone else's life choices or behavior, and they're sort of ticking the other two boxes okay, they're not coercing anyone, and they've got consent from someone, you get into trouble, because they're not hurting anyone. What's it up to you? That's part of the water we swim in. To challenge this framework here, is actually seen to be hurting someone. Words are violence in our culture because we are our psychological selves. So challenging someone else's behavior does hurt to them. And uh, Dale Keane, who uh, wrote a book about this, called I call these things taboos because they are regarded by our culture as our primary rules of social engagement. Adherence to them is essential. You see the issue there, because you know what it's like at the party and someone has a conversation with you about one of these sort of hot-button topic issues, and you can hear your brain start to go clank, 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 clank. What do I say here if this person disagrees with me? How do I show that I don't agree with that, but I'm a kind per All those sorts of things start working in our brains very quickly, because those are the three taboos of our culture. and actually quite difficult. So the second thing is, how do we use this little sweet little lie in our culture? So we've got the second point up. How do we use it? I think one of the things we do is that we use it individually and not corporately. It's something specifically for us as individuals, but it falls apart when we start to put it together in a community. And a church is a community, so how, do, how does it work there? And we also use it materially, in other words, uh, just in the physical world you can see, and psychologically. And we've forgotten what it might mean for us spiritually and theologically. There's something going on spiritually and theologically that we might have forgotten. Because we live in this time where we live as individuals, where there's a great commitment to personal autonomy. But at the same time, corporately, we are finding hurt everywhere. <laughs> Institutions that sought to do good are now being viewed as hostile to individuals, especially those institutions that stopped people who are you know, simply not hurting others by their actions. And that's where the culture war issues come in, the big issues we see in our day. If I make this decision about my body, that's not hurting anyone. That's all, the, that's all at play in these ideas. So the issue of so you take the issue of abortion, which is a hot-button topic in our culture, and you have to ask the question, is that an individual decision that is based 
on the best for a person, or is it a corporate decision that has consequences for us as a people? And you can, yeah, well, go figure over the next 20 or 30 years how you figure that out very easily, because those are the two battleground moments. This is an individual decision that doesn't hurt anyone else because of how we view personhood, or this is a corporate decision that is saying something about us as a community and is changing us as a community. Which right gets more oxygen at that sense? Who gets to decide? And what about competing hurts? These are all issues that you have to think about in our cultural frame. And we had this picture yesterday, but I'm going to put it up again. You've got the next slide, please. Be good. Where Amanda Herring at the SCOTUS a decision on Roe versus Wade wrote on her stomach with a day to go before giving birth, not yet a human. And the next slide, if we can. And this guy, Andrew Tate, who was a uh, YouTuber, Facebook, Instagram, uh, misogynist leader of young men who was saying terrible things about women and had millions of people following him. And he said, this is what it means to be an individual man in the culture. This is what it means to live a life that you want to live. So at one and the same time, you've got all these different things happening in our culture, and no one really knows who's hurting who and how would you know? Who gets to decide what's hurting someone and what isn't hurting someone? These are big issues in our cultural frame and how we do things. So the other thing about how do we use it, if we kick on to the next slide, is we're using it in a material way and a psychological way, not spiritually and theologically. It's easy, isn't it very easy to think that the decisions we make just have physical consequences? And that somehow as Christians, we've lost sight of the fact that there's a spiritual realm that's invisible that is there all the time. Even though we say we're Christians, we live functionally as if we, the material world is often all there is. And one of the reasons you come to church and you hear prayers and you hear liturgy and you sing songs is to click that button in your head that says there's more to this world than I can see and there can be more harm and good done in an invisible way than I can see. It resets your brain and your soul to remember that external Factors aren't the only thing at play here. Because as Christians, we can't simply be reduced to the material and psychological understanding of the world. There's a spiritual and theological understanding of the world. And it's very easy as Christians in a city like Melbourne or Perth, where I'm from, to just fall into saying, okay, you know, it's not hurting anyone, I get it. When we can't see the invisible stuff going on in our world, and we need to retrain our brain and our soul to see that world. And the Corinthian church that Paul wrote to had some of the similar issues. Even though they were very ancient and they lived in a pagan world before Christianity really took root, they still had some of the same issues. And the verse we read, which I think is super important, is this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. <clears throat> you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And in chapter 6 of uh, 1 Corinthians, what you've got is a whole bunch of people doing things to please themselves. 
and they're coming up with excuses for it. In chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is quoting the Corinthians back to themselves when he says, all things are lawful for me. That's their statement about, we can do anything we want. And then Paul says, yeah, but not everything's helpful. Well, it's not hurting me. And it says, all things are lawful for me, they say again. And Paul says, but I won't be dominated by anything. And then he talks about this issue of sexuality in chapter 6. It's pretty bracing. If you went to Corinth in the first century, you would be absolutely astonished by her. It would make Pride Day look pretty, you know, pretty G-rated, the stuff that goes on in pagan cities in the Roman Empire. And the Christians who become, who become, people who become Christians in Corinth struggled to break free of what it meant to live like a Corinthian. We don't have that problem, of course, though. We don't break, struggle to break free of what it means to live like someone else in Perth. Because if I live in Perth, living the good life is the default of what it means to live in Perth. And it's very easy to just sort of bring that into my Christian life and just say, oh, that's fine. I don't know what the equivalent is in Melbourne. Come on, there's got to be an equivalent in Melbourne of living the uber funky inner city life, because I kind of like that too. And I can just attach all these things and values of the city I live in into my Christianity. And Paul says, no. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. The problem with that statement, of course, is that would be seen as hurting everybody today. Because our culture, you're not your own. Oh, that, that's, that's terrible. Someone bought you? Slavery? Isn't the point of our culture to glorify and satisfy ourselves with our bodies as long as we are not breaking those three taboos? It feels like that's what our culture is saying. But when it comes to the issue of sex, especially the issue that Paul talks about sex with a prostitute, because prostitution and a, a, a way of doing religious prostitution at the temple was part of the religious ceremonies of the day. Everyone was rocking up to church in those days. He could have argued that sex with prostitutes doesn't lead to a good family life. He could have argued that they could be sex slaves, so that's an immoral act. Or he might say, you might get a disease. <laughs> but he doesn't argue that way. He argues spiritually. He says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. He goes on to say this, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh, verse 16. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. At the very time that this passage is telling us that we are spiritually joined to Christ and spiritually joined to others, <laughs> you get that fact, that you can break that and harm that even though it doesn't look like you're doing it on the surface because no one else knows. There's something deeply spiritual about there's something that's going on, even though you could tick all the boxes of the three taboos. Paul grounds our sexuality in our belonging somewhere else, to someone else. And if we are belonging to someone else, 
then on the surface it may look, not look like we're hurting anyone else, but we are doing deep damage to ourselves and indeed deep spiritual damage to the people of God. Uh, next, yeah, this guy, great beard, looks pretty sort of... Um, this is Alan Noble, and he wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own, Living Humanly in an Inhuman World. And he wrote this, if we belong to God, then our experience of belonging in the world has limits that we have not freely chosen. And some of those limits will defy <clears throat> a value system based on efficiency and measurable harm. What he means by that is, when the world says that's not hurting anybody, that can't be your first port of call to decide whether the thing you're doing is right or wrong. He says there's something deeper going on because God has created us in a world with limits and some of those limits defy measurable harm, if that makes sense. Something theological and spiritual is supposed to limit us, even if it doesn't look like we're harming anyone else on the surface. And Paul says here, we are receiving harm into ourselves and handing out harm to others, even if it doesn't seem like that's what we're doing. And that should make us stop and pause to think about that sweet little lie. Because if we just take it as something visible on the surface, it won't happen. You see, I think as Christians, we're often waiting for the zombie apocalypse to arrive because of the sexual revolution of the past 60 years. We're waiting for the whole place to fall apart. And it looks pretty good out there, actually. Melbourne looks like a fun place to be. Woodstock was a fun place to be to begin with, and Sydney's a fun place to be with, and people's decisions seem to be not hurting anybody. But... But something is going on at a level that we may not recognise or even see, and it's ruining us. For when God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die, that takes a long time to unravel. That takes a long time to unravel. So where's it taking us? Where is it taking us? It's no surprise that if we're living against the grain of the universe and how God put it together, and measurable harm as we can see it isn't the final say, then as Alan Noble suggests, something might break in our culture. Something might break despite our assertion that everything's okay. And look, biblical wisdom literature is helpful here so the wisdom literature of the Bible is saying, here's what the world's like, here's how, you, if you behave like that, it's not going to go very well for you. And the book of Proverbs is a great example. And if you read the book of Proverbs, there's lots of things in it, and much of it seems to be, don't join a gang and don't fight in the streets, but, you know, there's lots of stuff like that in Proverbs. But biblical wisdom in the Bible looks at the world from two different perspectives. And it looks at the end of those who love God, and the way lived by those who do not, the end of those who obey, obey his precepts, and the end of those who do not. And guess what? It doesn't always seem obvious close up. You read the wisdom of the literature of the Bible, and the start of the Psalms 
sets the tone. If you've got the next slide. The person who walks in God's counsel and God's law is told that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but not so the wicked. But you know, when you read later in the Psalms, what you get is, I was envious of the wicked because their life looked pretty good. And I would have fallen into despair if I had not seen their end. (laughs) Their end. The things that we say aren't hurting anybody can be so self-destructive and dismantle us to the point that we're completely destroyed. The person we are hurting the most (laughs) by our sinful actions is ourselves in total destruction. And in Psalm 16, you get these words. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. The actions they're doing seem to not be hurting anybody, but God gets the final decision on what goes in the scales and balance. And later on in Proverbs 16, it says there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. The thing about the Bible is that it's deeply transactional. It's deeply transactional. It says you can give up everything now and gain everything later. The Bible doesn't say give up everything now and be completely stoic about life. It says if you trade that that you can't keep, you will gain this that you cannot lose forever. It's very transactional. And when people in our culture and when we start to live against the grain of God's intention of what hurt actually looks like, we start to come apart in many ways. Not just physically, but relationally, psychologically. And we see that in our culture. In a culture that says we're not, it's not hurting anybody, anxiety levels are through the roof. <laughs> I said it yesterday that my wife is a clinical psychologist and is booked out over the last five or ten years. And she says it's just deep, deep anxiety that you can take bad ideas in your life that you think aren't hurting anybody and try to suppress them and compress them and push them into the corner, but it springs out somewhere and it's often springing out in people's emotional lives the denial aspect of whether something is actually hurting someone pops up. And in the end, what we end up doing is minimizing the hurt or explaining it away in extenuating circumstances. Because when we throw the pebble into the pond, the ripples go out. That's the story of the Bible, no matter how much we reframe it. I'm going to come back to Thomas Midgley, that evil genius of the 20th century and his Ethel and uh, Freon. Imagine being called Ethel Freon. You'd be, you know, you've got a life of evil crime right there before you. But in actual fact, Thomas Midgley knew that Ethel was killing people. He found that out early and he went into a huge level of denial about it. Because in the factories where it was being produced, it became known as loony gas because people were going crazy with it. 
And in order to allay the fears of everyone else in the public, he had a press conference in which he bathed his hands in a bowl of ethyl and promptly went on a month-long holiday to convalesce from lead poisoning. <laughs> but he damped that down. See, when reality kicks in that we may be hurting someone else by what we're doing, we go into some sort of denial or reframing of our actions that we can shape to being saying, that's not actually hurting. It's very easy to do. And I don't think, I think Christians, we're not really immune from this. Here's why. If we're swimming in the goldfish bowl of what life's like in a modern world, you're just going to start to believe the same thing for ourselves if we're not careful. Because often the way we think is materially, what I can observe now, and psychologically, I feel fine doing this. When there's a whole world that is invisible of a spiritual world where things are happening. See, interesting that in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, the sexual headlines, or the sexual stuff gets the headlines in that story. But it's not the only issue that's going on in the people of Corinth. The people of God living in Corinth have an opportunity to model to the rest of the city what it looks like to live, not just saying, this isn't hurting anyone, but how can I do life well for other people? Because I think that whole idea, this isn't hurting anyone, is a very low bar to jump when it comes to how should we do community life together. Well, let's do everything that isn't hurting anyone. Well, could we do something a little more than that? Because that could run very neutral for a long time. Just live my own life, make sure I'm not causing too many waves and I'm not hurting anyone. But what would it be like to flip that on its head and say, how can I live in such a way that I do good to everyone? And that's another question, isn't it? And I think we need to be able to refute that lie. So how do we do it? How do we do it as, how do you guys do it here in, at Inner West? How do you flip away from just saying, this isn't hurting anyone, to let's do as much good as we can to as many people as possible? Because that seems like a very different way of thinking about ethics, doesn't it? Very different way. Uh, Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India before he went back to England after 30 or 40 years and realised... <coughs> excuse me, that might grab a glass of water. <coughs> Sorry about that. Thanks, man. <coughs> This is my last speaking gig for the weekend, and I thought, I can see the finish line. <clears throat> but Leslie Newbigin says that the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And what he meant by that was the way people will understand the gospel is by looking at what the congregation lives its life like. How the gospel is understood and read by people out there will be on the basis of how you're living together here. Oops. <clears throat> and maybe this is a post-pandemic application. 
You see, at the very time that we become atomized in our decisions, at the very time we say it's much easier to not be with God's people, at the very time we lean away from being with God's people together, this might be the time to lean in. We don't get to decide if we're hurting someone by upping and leaving church. There might be good reasons to leave, but this is saying if the eye and the hand say we don't need each other, something's gone wrong. This isn't merely about our personal spiritual journey, what we're doing here today. Did you realise that? This is about serving and loving one another. And when one part of the body is suffering, what does it say? The rest suffers as well. And if one party of the body absents itself from another part of the body, that costs everyone else. It's about the health of the body and the part you play in its health and hurt. So I think we could go, as a lifetime as Christians, tut-tutting at the way the world does, it's not hurting anybody. It's very easy to do that. At the more extreme versions of the sweet little lie. And at the very same time, we could be completely committed to a spiritualized, Christianized me program in which the aim here is to get what I want hermetically sealed off from what everyone else here needs and say, well, I'm not hurting anybody if I just get up and leave. That's not true. It hurts. It hurts. And the church in the West has become the kind of church that just does that so often when people up and leave for consumer choice reasons. Now, I reckon there'll be lots of other sweet little lies in the future, and I don't know what they are all going to be. But I know with this one, if we live in a society that says there's a low bar way of thinking about what it looks like to hurt someone else, and we just accept that, then we are failing and our community around us. Unless we are people who are in long-term, thick, relational communities that model something else other than low bar, it's not hurting anyone else what I do, we're not going to be ready for people coming to us to say, I ticked all those taboo boxes and I still feel like something's wrong. What have you got to offer me other than my little individual self, and we say, well, just lots of little individual selves. We all do our own thing. We don't want that. We need more than that as God's people because we'll be leaving a bad legacy for the next generation. Perhaps here's one way of refuting it. Live as if every action we take has a spiritual and theological weight to it that we can't see. That could be hurting something in the spiritual realm of this church without us even thinking about that. So what would the body of Christ at Inner West Church look like that lived such interconnected lives that we would see the hurt if we broke away from the part of the body that's here? What would it say to the culture here and the cafe down the road and the streets around here to see people stay together long enough, deal with all the the stuff of life together long enough to show what it looks like, not just to say my mantra is it's not hurting anybody, but 
let's do as much good as possible to as many people we can. What about, is this healthy and helpful for others? What if we rejected that little lie by living a larger truth? By demonstrating that we won't settle for the low bar with others? Maybe the best way to counter this lie is not simply by pointing it out in the lives of other people or making a cultural point about it, but by living out the truth that it denies. I think that would be the way we would go forward as a people. Not, it's not hurting anybody, but how can we do the best, most good for as many people as possible? That would be the truth, I think. Amen.